Instead, we give our attention now to the reading of God's most holy word, which is our authority for truth. Genesis 22. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord Will Provide. As it is said to this day, On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. Now after these things it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah has borne children to your brother Nahor, Uz his firstborn, Buz his brother, Kemuel, the father of Aram, Chezed, Hazo, Pildash, Jilaf, and Bethuel. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Reuma, bore Teba, Gehem, and Tahash, and Makkah. Genesis 22. 
Let us go now to the New Testament reading, which is Hebrews 11, 8 through 19. This text is helpful in clarifying to the text we have just read. And it is familiar. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him, him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desired a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to rise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So far the reading of God's most holy word, we pray that the Lord would bless the preaching of it now today and our application of it to our lives. I think you would agree with me that the story of Genesis 22 is very perplexing at the start. From Genesis 12 on through to the end of Genesis 20, we have been eagerly awaiting the fulfillment to the promises of God concerning a son for Abraham and Sarah. And finally, in Genesis 21, we hear the wonderful news that a son was born. His name was Isaac. He's the son of promise. That was a wonderful chapter to consider, right? Finally, uh, the Lord gives joy to Sarah and to Abraham. Finally, this particular promise is fulfilled. They together have a son. And then we open up to Genesis chapter 22 and we are startled by these words. They seem to be so out of place. They are entirely unexpected. God spoke to Abraham and said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. This command is perplexing on a couple of levels. It, first of all, contradicts the promises that had been made to Abraham previously concerning his son Isaac and the work that God would accomplish through him, at least it seems to. How could God accomplish that work if this boy Isaac were dead. And secondly, this command does not square at all with what we know to be true of the character of the God of the Bible. The scriptures and other places strictly condemn and forbid the practice of child sacrifice, which was and is practiced in the world. And yet here the Lord tells Abraham to do it. And so that is why I have said that the beginning of this story is very perplexing to the reader. 
But what about Abraham? How do you think he felt? Can you imagine how perplexing this must have been to him? This passage, it gives us very little insight into the thought life of Abraham. Perhaps you noticed that. It doesn't tell us much about what he was thinking. And so the reader is left to imagine what was going on in his mind and heart as he walked through this experience. And no doubt he would have been thinking what we are thinking. Doesn't this contradict what the Lord had previously said to me? And this seems to be entirely out of character for the Lord that I have come to know. I'm sure these thoughts were going through uh, the mind of, of Abraham. But I wonder what was going on in his heart even. You and I can look back upon this narrative and we can ask these uh, questions. But we are detached from this story a bit, aren't we? We are detached personally. We must remember that Abraham lived this story. He actually received this word from the Lord and immediately rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey and took two of his young men and went with them. And his son Isaac, his only son, his son whom he loved, remember, he cut the wood for the burnt offering and he arose and went to the place of which God had told him. He, he lived all of that. And what I am saying is that he must have absolutely agonized over these things during the three-day journey toward the land that the Lord had instructed him to go. So if this story is perplexing to the reader, how much more for Abraham as he experienced these things personally. I'm encouraging you to put yourself in his place. But please notice how I have said that this story is perplexing at first, or in the beginning. This is a very important thing to emphasize. For though it is true that this story startles the reader at the start, by the end, it is clear, it is understandable, it is illuminating, and I think very comforting. Abraham himself, in fact, journeyed towards Moriah. He was perplexed and heavy-hearted. I think he walked with his eyes down, <laughs> wondering what would happen, wondering what the Lord would do. And then eventually he lifted up his eyes and saw the place that the Lord had commanded him to go to. But Abraham, having journeyed toward Mount Moriah in that way, perplexed and heavy-hearted, he journeyed home, encouraged, comforted, reassured in the promises of God. Indeed, I think his faith must have been greatly strengthened through this test. He returned home more certain than ever that the Lord would provide. The Lord would provide the fulfillment to his promises. And more specifically, the Lord would provide a substitute for his offspring so that though as good as dead, they might live. It's really an amazing story that is told here in Genesis 22. I think it's the pinnacle of the whole Abraham narrative. It might even be the pinnacle of the book of Genesis here. I don't know if you noticed this, but some time ago when I was preparing to teach this uh, through this book of the Bible, I chose an image to kind of stand for it. You have not seen it if you have not been to our website. But if you've been to our website, you've seen it. Do you remember what image I, I've, I chose to represent uh, our sermon series through the book of Genesis? It's an old painting, and I don't have it for you, I don't think. But it's an old painting by Caravaggio. It's, it, it's the the story of the sacrifice of Abraham depicted. And there you have Abraham with a knife in his hand. And there you have Isaac agonizing over what's about to happen to him. But there you have a ram right next to them. It's obviously not an accurate portrayal of what happened, but it's powerful. And the ram, if you look at that picture, that painting by Caravaggio, is looking intently into the eyes of Isaac. And Isaac is looking intently into the eyes of the lamb. There's an intimate relationship there. Uh, there's a compassion in the eyes of the lamb, the ram, and there is gratitude, I think, in the eyes of Isaac. 
because a substitute was provided. I, I would like to consider the story of Genesis 2 in five parts this morning. One, we will consider the call of God in verses 1 and 2. Two, we will consider the obedience of Abraham in verses 3 through 10. Three, we will consider the provision of the Lord in verses 12 through 14. Four, the promises of God reiterated yet again in verses 15 through 19. And then five, we will consider a warning concerning trusting in the appearance of things in verses 20 through 24. We're going to move rather quickly. We have a lot to cover. First of all, let us consider the call of God upon Abraham in verses 1 and 2. There we read, After these things God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. I want you to notice how these words that we have just read, verses 1 and 2, they echo the original call of God upon Abraham when he was called to leave his homeland and to go to the land that God would show him. The two passages are very similar. If you were to set Genesis 22, verses 1 through 2, alongside Genesis 12, 1, you would see that they are very similar. It makes me wonder, therefore, and I think this is the question we are supposed to ask, which journey was more difficult for Abraham? Was it more challenging for him to leave his home in Ur for the promised land that would eventually be revealed to him? Or was it more challenging for him to leave home in the promised land for Moriah in obedience to this call of God? I think it's an interesting thing to ponder. In my experience, brothers and sisters, I have found that many Christians assume that the Christian life will grow easier with the passing of time. If you are a young Christian, do you think that way? Do you think that the Christian life will grow easier with the passing of time? I would really question that notion. It actually seems to me that finishing well is often more difficult than starting well. And I think the story of Abraham would support this theory. It must have been difficult for him to leave Ur when first called by God. I acknowledge that. That required great faith. But there is something that tells me that this journey to Moriah later in life was even more challenging for him after he had received his son, his only son, whom he loved. And so, friends, starting well in the Christian life, I think, matters little when compared to finishing well. Finishing well is what the Scriptures call us to do. Those truly in Christ will finish well, as Christ Himself has said, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Matthew 10, 22. The words, after these things, in verse 1, they might seem insignificant, but I think they are very important. For they direct our attention to the past. After these things, well, what things? They direct our attention to the past in the narrative of Genesis. One, they remind us of what happened in chapter 21 with the birth of Isaac and the casting out of Ishmael. And if I had the time, I would set the story of the casting out of Ishmael and God's provision for he and Hagar right alongside the story concerning the sacrifice of Isaac and God's provision of a substitute. Maybe you can do this on your own later today. Go and read the story of Ishmael and God's provision for Ishmael and Hagar and compare and contrast it to this story concerning the sacrifice of Isaac and God's provision of a substitute for him. You would see that the two stories 
are very similar. They parallel one another. They are meant to be compared and contrasted. Also, the words after these things remind us of all that has transpired from Genesis 12 up to this point. This point. After these things. After what things? After all of this. And I think that Moses wants all of that, especially the promises made to Abraham in years past, to be very fresh in our minds so that we might be prepared to absorb the shocking story that he is about to tell. I'm about to tell you a story, Moses says. But remember that this thing, this event, happened after these things. Don't forget about the past. Indeed, I think it is wise for anyone who is going through a difficult and trying time to look back upon the past and to remember God's promises and His faithfulness in ages past. If you're going through a season of difficulty, don't forget to look back. Look back and remember God's faithfulness in your life and remember God's faithfulness in generations past. Be reminded that God is faithful yesterday, today, and forever. As we go on in verse 1, we read these words, God tested Abraham. Now, keep this in mind. These are Moses' words to the reader, to you and I, and not God's words to Abraham yet. God has not spoken yet in this narrative. These are Moses' words to the reader and not God's words to Abraham. Moses wants the reader to know from the outset that this story that he's about to tell, it was a test. It was a test. Abraham's faith was tested in this event. This we know from the start. Now, whether or not Abraham realized that it was a test from the start, we don't really know for sure. I think he must have caught on rather quickly, though, don't you? But Moses wants us to know that it was a test. And here is something that we must understand about our God. We learn it very early on in the pages of Holy Scripture. We must understand this about our God. Though He never tempts people... James 1.13 tells us that he never tempts. He does test them. And you say, well, what is the difference between tempting and testing? Well, the evil one tempts people with evil in order to make them stumble and fall. That is his objective when he tempts. But God, when he tests people, he does it for the purpose of strengthening and refining them. And so, tempting and testing share this in common. They both involve a kind of test. When you are tempted, are you not tested? They both involve a kind of test. But the purposes of God and of Satan, they are quite different. Satan seeks to destroy through his temptations. God's purpose is for the test to purify one's faith. When he tests those who belong to him, it is to strengthen and refine them. Sometimes God's people pass the test, don't they? Sometimes they fail. But even when they fail, God uses the failure to further refine them, if indeed they belong to Him. Abraham's faith was tested in the event that is described to us here in this chapter. And and I, for one, am glad to know that it was a test from the start. I'm glad that Moses warns us. For the thing that God called Abraham to do is shocking Again, God called out to Abraham, saying, Abraham, and Abraham replied as a faithful servant should. What did he say? Here I am. That's all he says. Remember that by this time, Abraham knew the voice of the Lord very well. He said, here I am. And then God spoke, saying, take your son. Listen carefully to these words. Take your son, 
your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, of which I shall tell you. As I've already said, this must have been shocking to Abraham. This word from the Lord seemed at first to contradict what the Lord had promised earlier, that through Isaac the promises of God would be fulfilled. And this word from the Lord seemed to contradict the character of God, which Abraham had come to know so well. The false gods of the pagans were pleased with human sacrifice, but not the Lord of all creation. But I want you to notice this. The Lord did help Abraham along by the way that he called him. When he called him, he called him in such a way so as to also help him along. In other words, he called him in such a way so as to soften the blow and to coax him along towards obedience. I want you to notice a number of things about this. I think three things in total. One, though our English translations do not bring this out, and I don't know why, in the Hebrew, it is clear that God actually said please to Abraham when he delivered his command. Translated more literally, the text says, please take your son, your only child whom you love. It is very, very uncommon for God to say please, or I beg you, or I urge you, when delivering commands to His people. What does God usually do when delivering His commands to His people? Thou shalt not murder. Does He need to say please to us? Does He need to beg us? No. Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not commit adultery. But here in this moment, as He gives this unique and special commandment to Abraham, he uses the word please. It's there in the Hebrew. Um, I know that it is going to sound strange, what I'm about to ask you to do, Abraham. Please trust me. Please take your son. I think that's the reason for it. I believe the Lord is softening the the, the shock of the thing that he's about to ask Abraham to do. I mean, you could imagine a father saying this to a son under some circumstance. I know you're not going to understand. Just please listen to what I'm saying right now. Do this thing. Okay? I know you don't get it. Just just do it. Please. Just listen. Obey my words. It seems to me that the Lord was having this kind of conversation with Abraham. There was an intimacy there. Please. I, I'm asking you to, to do this thing. Trust me. Two, notice that God reassured Abraham that he knew how precious Isaac was to him and that the thing that he was asking him to do was very difficult. I suppose he could have simply said, Abraham, take your son Isaac, etc., etc. But what did he say? Please take your son, your only son, whom you love. It's the Lord elaborating upon his words so as to reassure Abraham with this I know how precious Isaac is to you. I know he is your only son. I'm well aware of that. But please obey me nonetheless. And three, take note of the name of the place that God called Abraham to go to. Go to the land of Moriah, God said. The Hebrew word Moriah sounds like the Hebrew word for provide, which will become kind of the central word in this story. Provide. The Lord will provide. On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Uh, A little later in the story, Isaac will notice that his dad had everything needed for a sacrifice except what? The lamb. Uh, He he had worshipped the Lord at the altar many times in the past, and he's familiar with this. See, you have the fire. You have the word. I mean, you could imagine his voice, a little bit of nervousness, right? Or maybe he was just curious. I don't know. 
Fire, wood, where, where is the sacrifice? But remember how Abraham responded to him. God will do what? Provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. This, this knowledge that Abraham had concerning the eventual provision of the Lord was embedded in the name of the place to which the Lord called him to go. That's what I'm saying. Go to the land of Moriah. Go to the land of provision. Go to the land of seeing. God will see to it that indeed a, a, a substitute or, or something will be offered up so as to uh, provide the fulfillment of God's promises made earlier. And after the whole ordeal was over, notice that Abraham expanded upon the name Moriah and called the place the Lord will provide. That's what he named the place. This, this place is going to be called the Lord will be, uh, provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. So what I am saying is this, though all of this be became increasingly clear to Abraham as he obeyed, the name of the place was a clue to Abraham that the Lord would make it clear. He would see to it. He would provide for Abraham's needs and for Isaac. He would be faithful to fulfill his promises previously made. And so Abraham was called by God to head towards the land where the Lord would provide. It is as if the Lord spoke to Abraham and ever so subtly said, Abraham, please trust me. Take your only son, the son whom you love so very much, and go to the land of provision and offer him up there. And so I do not mean to minimize how difficult it must have been for Abraham to obey, but at the same time we should not ignore the hints that God dropped when God called Abraham so as to ease his mind concerning the perplexing thing that he was called to do. And in fact, we see that Abraham did walk forward with faith and he had this certainty, the Lord will provide. I know that. What will he do? I don't know. But he will provide for my needs. By the way, where is Moriah? Where is this land? Where is this place? Where is this mountain of provision that Abraham was called to sacrifice his son upon? Second Chronicles 3.1 reveals that Moriah is where the city of Jerusalem would eventually be built. More specifically, Mount Moriah was the location where the temple in Jerusalem would eventually be constructed. In 2 Chronicles 3.1 we read, Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to David his father, at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornon the Jebusite. And so keep this, mind, keep this in mind as we continue on with our story. We've considered the call of God upon Abraham in verses 1 and 2. Now let us consider the obedience of Abraham in verses 3 through 10. As you know by now, Abraham's faith was not always perfect, was it? He had his ups and downs. He sometimes allowed fear of the unknown to get to him. But here in this episode, his faith is rock solid, isn't it? He simply obeyed the Lord. This he did from the moment that he saddled his donkey to the moment that he lifted up the knife to slay his son. He just simply obeyed. Abraham simply obeyed the Lord in this narrative. And what was he thinking? What, what was he thinking? Uh, and as I've already said, the scriptures reveal very little concerning Abraham's thought life. I think it is safe to assume that he agonized over the thought of Isaac's death, and especially over the thought that it would come by his hand. But the scriptures do give us some insight into his thinking. And when they do, what do we find? We, we just find faith. For three days, Abraham journeyed along with Isaac and two of his young men. 
In verse 4 we read, On the third day Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. This is a dramatic scene. I think Abraham's heart sank when he saw the place, to be honest with you. How did he know it was the place? Well, the Lord must have revealed it to him, but the narrative doesn't tell us the details about that. But listen carefully to what Abraham said to his servants. We see faith here. Verse 5, Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship. That's what they're going to do. And come again to you. The word come in the phrase come again to you is plural in the Hebrew. In other words, Abraham said this, I and the boy will go over there and worship and the two of us will come again to you. He had this confidence that he and the boy would go and worship and obey the Lord and they were both coming back. He, he knew this for certain. How could Abraham have said this to his servants, given what the Lord had commanded him to do? Well, he said it in faith, knowing that the Lord would provide somehow. The Lord would not break his promises concerning the blessing that would come through Isaac. The Lord would provide. How? Abraham didn't know. But he knew that he would. And so he said, we are going to worship and we will return. Abraham's faith is also evident in his response to Isaac's question concerning the missing sacrifice. Uh, Dad, I see the fire, I see the wood, but where's the lamb? Abraham said, God will provide for himself, a sacri- himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they both went together. And notice that Abraham obeyed not halfway, not three quarters of the way, but all of the way, didn't he? When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar. He laid the wood on the altar in order to bind his son Isaac and he laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Uh, By the way, I I think this little piece about Abraham binding Isaac and laying him on the wood, it indicates that Isaac also had faith. Think about it. This isn't a little boy. This is a, a strong young man. It is difficult to imagine that a young man like Isaac would not be able to escape a man of Abraham's age in a situation like this out in the open on the mountains. I think he could have just run away if he wanted to. But he allowed himself willingly to, to be bound. He was a willing sacrifice. And then Abraham even went to this extent. He reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. That's strong language, isn't it? So he obeyed not halfway or three quarters of the way, but all the way. Abraham was perfectly obedient to God in this moment. He obeyed even to the point of lifting the knife to slay his son. And yet we still might ask the question, what exactly was he thinking? What was he thinking that he would be willing to go that far, even to the point of drawing the knife and lifting it to slay his son? I wish we knew. Don't you wish we knew what was going on in his mind? How could God provide if you've gotten to this point, you know? What were you thinking? Well, we can know for absolute certain because we just read a passage in the New Testament that tells us what he was thinking. In chapter 11, verse 17 of the book of Hebrews, we find these words, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He, Abraham, considered... This is the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 19. He, Abraham, considered, thought, that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. That's what he was thinking. He knew that God was able even 
to raise Isaac from the dead. And so he went to that extent to even lift up the knife to slay his son. Abraham knew that God was able to bring life from death. Hadn't he just witnessed that, by the way, uh, what, 16, 17, 18 years earlier, when all of a sudden life sprung from Sarah's barren womb? (laughs) He knew this about his God. God is able to bring life from death, and so he was obedient even to the point of death. Brothers and sisters, you and I should obey the Lord as Abraham did. We should do so consistently and to the end and even to the point of death, believing for sure that God will raise the dead and that He is the rewarder of those who seek Him. I don't want you to misunderstand me here, and so I have this word of warning or caution. I think it would be very foolish to think that God will speak to you in the way that He spoke to Abraham. I think that would be a very foolish thought. Abraham, remember, was a prophet. Abraham played a unique and very unusual role in the history of redemption. God does not speak to anyone today in the way that He spoke to Abraham. I think it would be very misguided and very unbiblical for anyone today to wait around waiting to hear from God before knowing what to do. If you need to help understanding why this is so, I I would be happy to take more time to explain it to you uh, from the Scriptures. But in brief, know this for certain. The Christ has come to whom the Law and the Prophets pointed. All of the promises of God, the promises that were delivered first to Abraham, find their yes in Him. This is what 2 Corinthians 1.20 says. Jesus the Christ was the Word of God come in the flesh. He was the pinnacle of God's special revelation. And here in Hebrews 1.1-2 we read these words. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. This is what He used to do. But in these last days the last days beginning with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. In these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. In other words, there is nothing left for God to reveal now that the Christ has come. The New Testament Scriptures testify concerning Him. The foundational age of the apostles and prophets is over. And now what do we have? We have the Holy Scriptures, the Old and the New Testament which testify to us concerning the Christ, and which also give us all that we need to live the Christian life. Now, does the Holy Spirit speak to us? I ask you that. Yes, He does. But in this sense, He is the paraclete, the helper, who ministers the Word of God to us, to our hearts and to our minds. He illuminates the Scriptures. He helps us to understand and to apply them. He gives wisdom to His people so that they might live in obedience to the Word of God already given. It is a very dangerous thing for people to interpret the Scriptures wrongly in this way, to sit around waiting to hear from the Lord just like Abraham did. He was a prophet. He was unique. You instead are to open the pages of Holy Scripture and you are to read. You're to read the Old Testament and the New. You're to read the Law and the Gospel. You're to pray that the Spirit of God would help you to live in obedience to the things already revealed, that He would guide and direct you, give you wisdom. You're to interact with one another to help to know what it is that you ought to do in the Christian life when you're confused about it. But here is what I am saying. Obey like Abraham obeyed. Though God will never speak to you as He spoke to Abraham, you still are to obey 
as Abraham obeyed 100% all of the way. You see, we are to live obedient lives as Abraham did in this instance. Abraham believed that God was able to raise Isaac from the dead if necessary. The scriptures tell us this is what he was thinking. Thankfully, it did not come to that, for the Lord provided a substitute instead. At the last moment, he provided a substitute. So let us consider briefly the provision of the Lord. Right as Abraham lifted his hand to slay his son, his only son Isaac, whom he loved, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, saying, Abraham, Abraham. I think it was a very urgent call, actually. I didn't get that right. Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And so you can almost imagine the urgency in the Lord's voice, and you can imagine also the huge relief that Abraham felt in that moment. And the Lord said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know, because this was a test, that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your, your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. How often does that happen, I wonder? Especially at that time, in that place. It was an act of God, of course. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. Abraham knew what happened. He called the name of that place, The Lord Will Provide. As it is said to this day, On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. I've mentioned this many times now in our study of the book of Genesis. Many of the events that are recorded for us in this book, and also in the whole of the Old Testament, they have a prototypical quality to them. They were real events that really happened, but they also pointed forward to things yet to come on a greater scale. And certainly this story concerning the sacrifice of Isaac and the Lord's provision of a substitute was one of those events. Can't you see it? It's incredible. This is an amazing story. It's amazing what the Lord did here in this event, but also to provide some revelation to us concerning what he would do from Abraham's day forward. On an earthly level, Isaac typifies or symbolizes the people of Israel who would descend from his loins. They, because of their sin and rebellion, would deserve to be cast out of the land. But God would provide a sacrificial system by which atonement would be made for their sins. Where would all of that sacrifice happen eventually, by the way? On Mount Moriah, at the very same place that this episode took place. God would, through that sacrificial system, delivered under Moses and continued up until the resurrection of Christ and beyond a bit, in that sacrificial system, atonement would be made for the sins of the people so that they might remain in the land that the Lord had given to them. It was an earthly thing. It was a typological thing itself. But here, this little event pointed forward to that bigger event yet to come. And on a spiritual and heavenly level, Isaac typifies or symbolizes the true Israel of God. That is to say, the elect of God. All who have faith, the faith of Abraham from amongst the Jews and Gentiles. They deserve death because of their sin. You and I deserve death because of our sin. But God, being rich in mercy, would provide a Savior, Christ Jesus the Lord, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is our substitute. And so please understand this, therefore. The gospel was portrayed 
through Abraham's obedience and the Lord's provision. The message was communicated loud and clear. Here's the Lord's plan. Here is what he will do. He will provide. He will provide. And what would he provide? Your daily bread? Well, yes, that. He will provide your daily bread. He is a faithful God in every way to his people. But here, what do we learn? He's going to provide a substitute for the children of God. That's what he's going to do. And so the doctrine of substitutionary atonement was not invented by Christians or by Christian theologians. Far from it. Even Abraham and all who descended from him were taught that God would provide salvation for his people through a substitute. It was portrayed before their very eyes in this narrative that the people of God had access to from the moment it happened onward to this present day. I wonder if you notice the little remark that Moses made at the end of verse 14. There's a little remark there. And it's, it's Moses' remark, the author of Genesis. He, he's just, he's noting something. Who is Moses writing to originally? The, the people of Israel who descended from Abraham and Isaac's loins, who spent time in captivity in Egypt and who were delivered out. They wandered in the wilderness and they would eventually come into the promised land. He's writing to that group of redeemed people, right? And he says at the end of this little story here, as it is said to this day, what day? His day. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And so Moses wrote Genesis over 400 years after Abraham experiences. He wrote Genesis after the Hebrew people spent a long time as slaves. And yet even still, evidently, this saying was common. On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. What mount? Moriah. The mountain where the temple would be built. The mountain where animal sacrifices would be offered up for hundreds of years. And in the place where the Christ the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the son of Abraham, would eventually die. He would be slain, not only for the Hebrews, but also for the Gentiles. He would be slain as a substitute for all who had been given to him by the Father. Wow. Isn't the Word of God amazing? It's awesome. Now what do we say? We do not say, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided, do we? We don't say that. We say something similar. On the mount of the Lord, it has been provided. It has been provided, for it is finished. I have two more points to make and very little time to make them. We've considered the call of God upon Abraham, the obedience of Abraham, and the provision of the Lord. Now let me say a very brief word concerning the promises of God reiterated. Uh, these promises that we have here in this text are not new. They've already been made to Abraham unconditionally. In other words, God had promised that these things would surely happen no matter if he obeyed or not. But now because of Abraham's obedience, they are stated with even more forcefulness and clarity. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and he said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of, the, of his enemies. And in you, in your offspring, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Again, these are not new promises. And the fulfillment of them was never contingent upon Abraham's obedience. But Abraham's obedience brought about an even more robust expression of these promises. 
Not only would his descendants be as the stars of heaven, but as the sand of the seashore, we hear now. And not only would Abraham's descendants possess the land, but his offspring would possess the gate of their enemies, referring to their victory over their enemies. It's a strong statement. Friends, I have to make this point of application before moving on. When we obey God, as Abraham did, we do not earn our salvation or make it sure But we do often gain a sense of assurance concerning it. Do you understand that? When we obey God as Abraham did, it's not that we earn our salvation. Our salvation can't be earned. But we do often gain a sense of assurance concerning our salvation. We make it sure in that sense, sure in our own hearts and minds. When we disobey God, We sometimes wonder if we are really His. Have you ever had that experience? Especially if you have been caught up in habitual sin. Over time, you begin to think to yourself, do I really belong to Him? If I do, then why do I continue to do this? If I did, wouldn't I have victory? Uh, It gives an avenue for the evil one to accuse you, in fact. Um, But when we obey, that often brings an increase in our confidence in Christ. And I would imagine that Abraham walked away confident, more confident than ever before. He obeyed, he passed the test, the gospel was portrayed before his very eyes, he was sure that on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided, and he was reassured then concerning the promises of God that had been delivered to him unconditionally in the the years past. And so I wonder, friends, do you have a sense of assurance? Are you confident in Christ Jesus? If you lack assurance, the possible reasons for that are many. I will admit that from the outset. But one possibility is that you lack it because you have been disobedient. You've been disobedient. You've been living not as a child of God, but as a child of the world instead. It is no wonder then that you wonder whose son, whose daughter am I? We need to obey the Lord, and with obedience comes confidence. The apostle spoke of assurance when he said, And by this we know that we have come to know Him, if we keep His commandments. By keeping the commandments of God, we gain this confidence. We come to know that we do, in fact, know Him. Abraham was obedient, he passed the test, and he was blessed to have the promises of God reiterated to him, yet again with even greater boldness and clarity than before. In the fifth and last portion of our text today, we are warned against trusting in the appearance of things. This narrative has a conclusion uh, that seems kind of strange and out of place at first. Did you notice it when I read it earlier? I'm not going to read it again, but in verse 20 we are told about the descendants of Abraham's brother Nahor. The reason I'm not going to read it again is because I struggle pronouncing the names. But notice that this text concludes by telling us of Nahor's 12 descendants. 12 descendants. Note that number, by the way. 12 descendants. So what is this about? Why did Moses provide a list of the descendants of Abraham's brother Nahor as a conclusion to this story concerning Abraham and his son Isaac? It seems a little out of place. The answer, I think, is that it sets the apparent flourishing of Nahor over and against the apparent languishing of Abraham, God's chosen and blessed one. When you look at Nahor, 
Abraham's brother, who did not follow the Lord, who remained in Ur, and presumably continued to worship false gods. What do you see with your eyes? A man who is flourishing, with many offspring, with many descendants. Twelve, in fact. I think more could have been listed. But twelve are chosen because that number represents something. It's a number of completion. It will become important later in the book of Genesis. But when you look at Abraham, what do you see with your, with, your, with your natural eyes? What do you see? Well, concerning offspring, he is a man that is barely scraping by. He had one son by Hagar, Sarah's servant. That was a mess. He had to send him away. And he had only one son by Sarah. And this one just narrowly escaped being sacrificed. Right? But the people of God must learn to distrust the appearance of things. For sometimes things are not as they appear. Abraham was indeed blessed of God. A great multitude was truly in his loins. Indeed, God would establish his kingdom through him. And from him, the Christ would be brought into the world. This was all true. We know it to be true. But judging by the appearance of things as they stand now, here in Genesis 22, we might be tempted to say that Nahor was the blessed one of the two. But this is not true according to the decree of God. Friends, you must also learn to look beyond the appearance of things. Quite often the people and institutions that appear prosperous and blessed, we will find they will come to nothing And the people and institutions that belong to the Lord seem on the surface to be so very small and insignificant. I want you to notice that this has been the common phenomenon throughout the history of redemption. And I believe it's true to this present day. And so I ask you, where is the kingdom of God in the world today? Where is His church? Where is He working? And if I were a betting man, I would wager that a great sum of money upon God, working amongst people and institutions that on the surface seem to be of very little significance. Because this is God's way. Our God has chosen what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Let's bow for prayer. Almighty God, this is our prayer that you would grant that the words which we have heard today with our outward ears may by your grace be so grafted inwardly in our hearts that they may bring forth in us the fruit of good living to the honor and praise of your name through Jesus Christ our Lord and all of God's people say. Amen.